You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. What's up, Downers? Welcome to the show. Did you know that uh, volcano went off in Hawaii? Y'all heard about that? Thought y'all might want to hear a little bit more about it. It made me start thinking about volcanoes and stuff. Um, I was uh, thinking about them because... I've been reading some science books about the formation of the earth and I was just at the I just saw a volcano exhibit in New York at the uh Natural History Museum, which I thought was really fascinating. And then Toby was able to find a volcano expert right at the time when the Hawaii Kilauea is, you know, in the news because it's shooting out some lava and stuff like that. So I thought it'd be fun to have a geology, plate tectonic, volcano, earthquake, tsunami. Uh, type of get somebody on that knows about that stuff so I could ask some questions and try and learn a little bit. I tried to keep this episode a little bit more science minded, um, but that's kind of more embarrassing because when you try to talk technical with somebody that really knows, you sound dumber and dumber. So instead of just doing talking points, I was trying to learn a little bit more, which meant I had to open my mouth and ask some dumber questions. So make myself sound a little bit sillier or dumber, but that's what's needed for me to understand things a little bit deeper. So I hope you'll forgive me for sounding like I don't know what I'm talking about in this episode, but that's the only way to learn stuff, so I was just trying to do do that on air. But uh, I really, really enjoyed the conversation, and if it's too science-y for some people, fair enough, but I thought it was quite interesting. Um, Let me tell you what else is going on, and that is Emory Shows. Come see Emory Shows in California if you're in Seattle, Oregon, that's Washington, Oregon, California. Arizona, and even El Paso, Texas. Those are the places we're going. We're going to do a special VIP set there where we play acoustic and take questions, take pictures, and hang out. Those are very cool. Some of those are selling very well or selling out, so get your tickets soon. Some of these shows are going to sell out. I doubt all of them will, but I bet some of them will, so I won't tell you which, but be in a hurry to go get those tickets. That's emorymusic.com. And uh, that's a can't miss kind of thing. You just can't miss it, basically. Like, if you're thinking about going, you are going because you can't miss it. Uh, Also, Rockabilia, supporting this show. I've been great. You guys must be getting some beanies and hoodies and other things like that. Uh, It's officially licensed merchandise. You can get almost anything there. Great website. They've been doing it for a long time. Rockabilia.com, if you use the promo code PC Jabberjaw, you get 15% off if you buy yourself or somebody else uh, some rock and roll swag, memorabilia, merch, you name it. Rockabilly.com. All right, let's get this episode. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. Break it down, oh, break it down. Break it down, oh, break it down. Well, this uh, episode is really interesting to me because my wife is one of those people who, um, I know, it's weird. She, I know you must see people like this all the time. I'm so curious what you say about them. But she, we live here in Seattle, and there's all this talk of the subduction zone here, and we can get into that. I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. But people here in Seattle love to talk about volcanoes and say the big ones coming, and that we have Mount Rainier and earthquakes and stuff like that. My wife has these alerts on her phone for volcanoes all over the world. I don't know how she does it, but she's always telling me, you know, the Pacific Island so-and-so got this earthquake all the time. Like, she's worried 
we're in imminent danger all the time, and she lives in that mode. Is that not, let's just start there. Is that not preposterous? Well, I, I think it's probably unnecessary to be alarmed <laughs> all the time. Uh, but she, you know, she doesn't know anything on. about geology or any of this stuff. She just, she just, I think she just wants to be worried or entertained by it or somehow, but she pays attention to like seismic activity all over the world for some reason. Yeah, well, people do. Um, some people are interested in weather uh, mm -hmm. phenomenon and keep track of storms in different places, and other people uh, yeah, get notifications on earthquakes. You can sign up and get notifications of uh, earthquakes globally or in the country or wherever you'd like. Mm -hmm. But you know, let's just okay. Let's just start here. Can I tell her we're not in imminent danger? She, especially with the Hawaii volcano now, with right. Kilauea, so, she's like, well, we better be, like, she wants to get supplies for the house in case we, the, the whole thing, she said Yellowstone had something too, who knows? Right, <laughs> so I think you can pretty well reassure her that anything going on in Hawaii is not going to affect the Cascade volcanoes <laughs> or the Pacific Ring of Fire, mm -hmm. it's far enough away that uh, that's localized to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Okay, I will tell her that. I'll make her listen to this, and uh, and so we don't have to prep for the imminent apocalypse of a volcano. But on the other side of that, though, when people talk about super volcanoes and volcanic stuff and Mount Rainier here, there is very real possibility or it, it's inevitability that there's going to be some real catastrophic event, though, in our future. Is that? But maybe in hundreds of years or or more. Well, you have to remember that anywhere around the, any given time around the world, there are dozens of volcanoes erupting. Most of them don't make it into the news because they're not very big eruptions mm -hmm. uh, and or they're not threatening people. Mm -hmm. So that's happening all the time. And there are small eruptions, there are medium-sized eruptions, and they're very big, so-called super eruptions. So fortunately, the super eruptions are extremely rare. Mm -hmm. So the last time Yellowstone had a super eruption, it was you know, on nearly a million years ago. Mm -hmm. So it was a long time ago. And they're very infrequent. In fact, no human is, uh, uh, certainly modern humans have not been around during a super eruption. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know what to expect, but I think, you know, unless, and, and the other thing to remember is that there, it's, will be warning signs prior to eruptions. For, for example, there were warning signs prior to the activity changing at Kilauea. Mm -hmm. well, let's start there. That, that's the thing that's in the news now. And if, uh, when something like this happens and it's getting news coverage, do you get super busy? Like, you know, I feel lucky to be able to talk to a volcanologist when there's <laughs> volcanoes in the news. Yeah. Well, I got pretty busy because uh, I have worked for many years in Hawaii and on Kilauea. And some of my former PhD students work for the U.S. Geological Survey, and, and they're still active in the volcano program. And we're um, watching it before I heard about it. So the first time I heard about it, one of them contacted me and said, hey, are you aware that earthquakes are migrating down the East Rift Zone? We can talk about that in a second. And I said, no, I wasn't. That's cool. I'll check it out. And so, um, so it was first word of mouth, and then I started watching it on a pretty – uh, active basis, just so I was aware of what's happening. So what was the first things that you saw? What did you know about Kilauea before you know, somebody like me or, or anybody watching the news did? So the thing to know about Kilauea is it's been erupting more or less continuously since 1983. 
that's when what we call the Pu'u'o'o eruption began. Uh, it's erupting out of an event that was named Pu'u'o'o by the, the Hawaiian elders. And it has had many phases of activity, but uh, with some pauses during that time period. But as I said, more or less has been continuously erupting since 1983. What happened a few weeks ago now, or almost two weeks ago, I guess, was that um, there were earthquakes that were migrating farther away from the summit of the volcano from Pu'o'o going east, and they were moving towards a more populated area. So where Pu'o'o has been erupting, uh, at one time there was a small community down on the coast there, but that, was, that has been overrun by lava many years ago. So all those people moved out. But the earthquakes were migrating to the east in a way that was taking, the earthquakes were moving closer to where people live. And there were other indicators that we have in terms of how the volcano shape changes. It actually deforms as magma migrates. So we could tell then, before any eruptions moved in the lower east rift zone, that, that magma was moving, mm-hmm. was moving into that region. So the question is, was it going to erupt, or might that magma just move underground and then freeze under, in, in place under the surface? But we knew magma was moving. And then, of course, then it broke out, and there were eruptions occurring in this area, and that by then was not a surprise at all. And the people, uh, so it was a surprise, but still not on the news. It's just you knew there was activity coming and that some lava would probably be coming, but you didn't know how. I mean, there wasn't a part of... of it wasn't an immediate worry that it would be a super eruption, for instance. You knew that it wouldn't be that, or that's not, or I don't know. I, I guess that's what I'm asking. Or is it still possible to have a super eruption there? Uh, a, a super eruption is not in the cards, mm-hmm. uh, or is not in something we need to worry about. So we have to maybe back up and talk about different kinds of eruptions. Okay. So there are the classical Hawaiian eruptions where you have lava flows going on the surface. These are what we would tend to call effusive. They're not explosive. Mm-hmm. The opposite of explosive is effusive. So these are flows that are moving across the surface, and you've probably seen from videos, they typically move slower than people walk. So mm-hmm. as, people, as long as people are paying attention and they're listening to civil defense and so forth, they get out of the way. It should not be life-threatening. Of course, it can be very damaging to structures. Right? Lava flow goes through a house, it will take it out. You burn it down because they're very hot. The, mm-hmm. These lava flows have been moving at, they're coming in at about 1200 degrees centigrade. That's really hot. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the other end of the extreme, you have these very explosive eruptions uh, like at Yellowstone. And they occur because the composition of the magmas are very different than the composition of the magmas that, that occur at in the Hawaiian volcanoes. But Hawaii can have somewhat explosive eruptions. We used to teach years ago that Hawaii did not have any explosive activity. That turns out not to be true. It can have explosive eruptions, but nowhere near the magnitude of the Yellowstone super eruption Mm -hmm. type uh, activity. And so that's a real, but the Yellowstone lore of that it really, that you hear uh, you know and i don't necessarily think we need to spend a whole ton of time on that unless it's interesting to you but the people that like to pay no attention to anything except the <laughs> super eruption and apocalypse and conspiracy theories and stuff like that how did that stuff strike you is that just 
that's just fringe entertainment stuff, or is there real stuff that we should be uh, raising awareness about with stuff like that? Well, I, I definitely think people should be aware of uh, the potential for for explosive eruptions. As I mentioned before, they are uh, infrequent. We had, of course, explosive activity in the Cascades in 1980 at Mount St. Helens. Mm-hmm. Um, that erupted. So we we can often talk about the to get some feeling of the size of an eruption, how many cubic kilometers of material has erupted. So remember, cubic kilometers. Imagine a cube, one huge, kilometer, yeah. six tenths of a mile by six tenths of a mile by six tenths of a mile. It's huge. huge. And Mount St. Helens erupted about one cubic kilometer of ash, mm-hmm. roughly speaking, or perhaps a little less. Some of the eruptions at Yellowstone erupted a thousand cubic kilometers. Mm-hmm. So like a thousand Mount St. Helens going off in 1980. Those are very different beasts. Um, there are many volcanoes around the globe that are capable of generating super eruptions. But as I said, they're extremely rare. So I, I don't think anybody has to stay awake at, at night worrying about a super eruption. I think to the best of our knowledge, there would be many, many signs of activity if something was building up towards that. Mm-hmm. And we see earthquake swarms in Yellowstone. That happens all the time. We see some swelling of the ground, and then it, it will sort of move back down. So it's kind of moving up and down over time. So we track it. We pay attention to it. But it's not something uh, people should be losing sleep over. Well, you know, Mount St. Helens is a pretty significant event. That's pretty – when you say there's volcanoes going all the time, but they're not, there's not ones like that going all the time. No, Mount St. Helens size eruptions probably occur – I don't know exactly, but say every few years somewhere mm-hmm. around the globe. Mm-hmm. It might be South America or it might be uh, in um, Indonesia or the Philippines somewhere. Unless there are a lot of people threatened, you, you probably don't hear about it in the news. Sure. But, um, there are smaller eruptions uh, going on, and then there's some like Pu'o'o. See, the, the eruption didn't start last week. It, it's been erupting, like I said, for over 30 years. It's just that it migrated into an area where more people are living, so that's what got it into the news. I see, yeah. And so, you know, St. Helens being a pretty big one, it, it, but even that being relatively common, it, and that's kind of in a remote place, but it seems fascinating to me just you know when you think about the earth and geology or everything from that to the hurricanes and the tsunamis and everything that can happen it's just always struck me as bizarre that people maybe it's not true but believe it's kind of true that people seem to gravitate towards places where natural disasters are common that may not be entirely true that might just be because people like to be at the coast and stuff but here in seattle with this mount rainier here there are a lot of volcanic evacuation plans and people pretty aware of that if we have anything like that even a mount st helen size explosion at rainier would be very could be very catastrophic to the people that live for instance between the puget sound and mount rainier itself oh absolutely and one of the the, the factors that we are concerned about with uh, with mount rainier and it doesn't actually have to be a very big eruption or eruption at all are volcanic mud flows mm-hmm. um these are, uh, they can be triggered by, um, say, an earthquake, or they can be triggered by a small eruption. It doesn't have to be a very big eruption. There was um, an eruption, a very small 
eruption of a volcano in South America called Nevada del Ruiz, it generated mud flow, which killed 20,000 people. Wow. So typically when we talk to people, they are worried about lava flows. As I mentioned, lava flows usually move pretty slowly and you can walk away. These mud flows, and mud doesn't sound that scary, right? It's not near scary. About mud, yeah. right? Everybody knows about mud. But these volcanic mud flows uh, can move 30 miles an hour. And some of the mud flows from, we call them lahars, uh, some of the lahars from Mount Rainier have extended all the way into the Puget Lowlands. Mm -hmm. And they're geologically quite young now. Like how young? Well, 500 years. Okay, yeah. So you've got major mud flows, lahars, in the last 500 years, way in the zone where there's a lot of population now. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I know people that live, uh, I'm, you know, I live here in Seattle and I know tons of people that live like at the base of the mountain. They keep building subdivisions down there. They're super cool to live at. <laughs> it's beautiful. And, um, but the USGS, US Geological Survey has put in a Lahar monitoring network. The good thing about Lahars is they move pretty fast, but it would take quite a while to hit the, you know, the more densely populated areas in the Puget Sound lowlands. Mm -hmm. And um, there are ways of detecting those lahars as they come rumbling down. They'll, they'll tend to go down the valleys, um, just like water. And so there are ways of putting in seismometers that can just pick up the shaking as those things roll by. They're, mm -hmm. they're like a big freight train going by, and it shakes the ground, and you can pick that up. So there is a warning uh, system that USGS uh, operates. Of course, these things you know, take funds, and so it's good pe for people to know that uh, this is in place, and it's in there to protect them in the, in the event of something like that happening. How much bigger does a volcano have to be? You know, if St. Helens was close to a kilometer of, what was the word you used for the ash? Cubic kilometer Cubic of ash. Of, of yeah. ash displaced, or what is it? What does it happen? Just sent up? What, what do you? Erupted. Yeah. Erupted. And that means ash that goes up in the air or just off of the mountain to anywhere? Well, it, it, it goes up in there. So ash is, is uh, generated during explosive eruptions, and the heavier particles will fall out closer to the mountain, and the lighter, finer particles will be uh, drift with the wind. And mm -hmm. so in, in 1980, you had ash you know, well into Idaho, and then even farther down, uh, downwind from that, carried by, by the wind. So uh, it depends on which way the wind is blowing. And typically, in the in the Cascades, it's blowing from west to east. So there's there's more hazard from the ashfall um, going west, uh, east of the volcanoes. Going east, yeah. So, but the ash is made out of what? What's it? What is it? Yeah. So the ash are little particles of rock and glassy material. So what happens in an explosive eruption is you have molten rock. At, mm -hmm. um, in the case of Mount St. Helens, close to 900 degrees centigrade. And within that molten rock, there's dissolved gases, carbon dioxide, water, sulfur gases, and so on. That are in the rock all the time. That are in the magma when it's melted. Okay. Okay. So it's very much like the analogy is a soda bottle, you know, carbonated drink. And you shake up that carbonated drink and you pop the top and it comes frothing out. So what's happening is that as that magma is erupting to the surface, the gases come out of solution 
they form bubbles, and as the pressure decreases, the volume of those bubbles expand. Those bubbles, because you're coming from deep in the earth, and the pressure is enormous. Mm-hmm. And when that pressure is really, really high, it keeps the gas dissolved or keeps the bubbles, once they form, really, really tiny. Yeah. But as the pressure decreases, then the bubbles grow and grow until it basically fragments the, um, the magma and just blasts it into little tiny shards. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what ash is. So it, the ash is different. It's, it's different. Sorry, I'm just trying to get an actual conceptual grip on this. The ash is different densities. So is there a spectrum of densities from the light stuff? In the, is it continuous? Like the lightest stuff floats up in the air and the heaviest stuff is dense magma? Or is it so, the ash yeah. is molecularly made out of what? So the ash... Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, the different composition of lavas, if we go from Hawaii to Mount St. Helens, for example, we tend to label the different rock types based on the amount of silica that's in there. So uh, silica is SiO2, uh-huh. silicon dioxide, and um, in, that's the major component that forms igneous rocks. These are rocks that come from mol- molten material. And in Hawaii, you have these black lavas, when the, once they're cooled, you know, they're not red hot anymore, they, they're typically black, and they're called basalt. Uh-huh. And they're about 50% uh, silica. And the rest of it is things like iron and magnesium. They're relatively rich in these uh, heavier elements. And you go to Mount St. Helens, and you're getting up into 60 70% silica, much less iron and magnesium, more aluminum, more silicon. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because the melting temperatures are different, but Mm -hmm. it also matters because the viscosity, how sticky the fluid is, is really, really different. So the Hawaiian lavas are pretty fluid. They flow downhill, although you've seen some of these kinds of flows called a'a flows, which move very, very slowly, and they're they're semi-cooled, and they're big, chunky things that that you've seen moving down the roads uh, in the last week or so. But typically, they're much more fluid than the lavas that come out of the Cascade volcanoes like Mount St. Helens. They're really thick and sticky, and so they can't flow. And when that pressure decreases, they just blow apart. I see. So it's the pressure in there, and then it'll scatter the lighter stuff up into the air and some on the surface. But the ash is actually rock. It is actually rock. Different. Right. It can, the rock, I'm just having a hard time understanding how the rock can get so light that it can go in the air because it's in the smallest, very, very small particles. But They're very fine particles, yeah. But it still seems like they would, you know, be heavy. Well, they rain out. I mean, they fall yeah. out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there are gases that will go up into the atmosphere and go all around the world. Okay. That will be carried and that will um, uh, can affect sunsets. You you get a lot of um, aerosols that are suspended in the atmosphere for for long periods of time. So following the Krakatoa eruption in in the 19th century, that was affecting sunsets in Europe, even though this was uh, in the Sunda Straits in uh, Indonesia. All the way around the world, it was making sunsets very uh, red and dramatic. Because the particles in the air would refract the light? These are little tiny droplets of, of sulfuric acid and things like that were just carried uh, all the way around the world. 
how much bigger would it have to be than St. Helens at uh at one kilo? What do we say? It's a cubic cubic, cubic kilometer. kilometer. Um, yeah. one one of those did that stuff. How much bigger would it have to be to actually cause environmental, you know, noticeable stuff like they would talk about where it would, you know, change the temperature locally or globally and things like that. Mm-hmm. Or have whatever effects that would be. And I guess the second part of that question is, do all the small amounts of these things actually impact, impact climate change directly or in any way? Yeah, good question. So people always ask about that when people talk about climate change. You know, how are volcanoes affecting that? Um, these, as we were talking, the ash tends to fall out pretty quickly within a number of days. Most of the ash will fall out because it's pretty it is relatively heavy compared to the atmosphere. Um, these aerosols can stay up in the atmosphere for extended periods, and they can reflect some of the sunlight back into space. So the Mount Pinatubo eruption in the Philippines, which was about 10 cubic kilometers, uh, did make a noticeable, measurable change in global average temperature for uh, a year or so following that eruption. So that's 10 times bigger than than Mount St. Helens. Mm -hmm. Other eruptions that have put a lot of um, sulfur aerosols into the atmosphere just because of what they erupted through, the deposits that the eruption came through, have also had uh, measurable impacts on, on climate. They tend to go away in a year or so, and then we see this overall March uh, increasing temperature with time, which is related to climate change. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, when you, when you think about climate change and pollutants and aerosols and CO2 emissions, you feel like, okay, I didn't drive my car, you know, to help save the planet and then the damn volcano. <laughs> I mean, it seems like inconsequential compared to volcanoes all over the world every day spitting out tons of stuff. It sounds like it's right. bad. Right. But, you know, that, that's the background. That's going on at some level all the time. So volcanoes mm-hmm. are releasing CO2, and there's a lot of effort now to try to totally understand the CO2 cycle because CO2 is emitted in the atmosphere, and it's, it's taken out of the atmosphere. It goes in the oceans, and then uh, organisms secrete calcium carbonate shells, and they fall to the bottom of the sea and stuff like that. But that's all background, and we're just dumping a lot of Adding CO2 it. Into, it, into the atmosphere on top of what the natural background is. So yes, a big eruption will perturb the system for a while, um, but then it goes back to, to um, what, what was going on before. But it, but it, we are adding to it. Is that too too simple of a, of a construction I'm making there? That that volcanoes are doing that part of it, which is the background that we're already sitting in. They're already causing climate change or just change over time, and then humans are adding to it. Well, there's equilibrium. So as I'm saying, that that volcanoes are putting CO2 in the atmosphere all the time, and CO2 is coming out of the atmosphere due to natural processes. And that's been going on for millions and tens and hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of years, billions of years. What's changed in the last couple hundred years is that we're burning a lot of fossil fuels and putting way more CO2 in the atmosphere. So mm-hmm. the, um, now you're getting away from my area of expertise. Oh, but, that's okay. But, I just but, like creeping up at things the, from different angles, I think, is usually helpful. Yeah. If you get an expert on, on a very certain thing, then that's, that's okay. But it's kind of interesting to bounce around topics with people that are not like, for instance, I, you're not on here to talk about climate science, but 
you have a, a better side parallel understanding to something that informs that that I think people take. I think you're very listenable too because you're just a volcano expert. So I think there's some interesting takeaways right. from your. Well, I think the, the pre-industrial. Now, I may, as I said, I'm not an expert on this, so I may have the numbers slightly off. But um, I think the pre-industrial CO2 levels were something like 350 parts per million. Mm-hmm. And so whatever that was, that was an equilibrium. You know, some years it might go up, do an eruption, and then it would stabilize back down. But it was around 350, and then we just blew through 400. And four, you know, I don't, again, I don't know exactly the numbers, but we right. added enormously to that. And that's been measured pretty well. Actually, uh, in Hawaii, there was the first uh, long-term CO2 record was put on Mauna Loa volcano, the top of Mauna Loa, because it's out there in the middle of the Pacific. It's not being perturbed by any other local sources. And that's the big volcano that's sitting next to Kilauea, mm-hmm. which hasn't erupted since 1984. But it could erupt, and it can send lava flows into even more populated areas. So um, in terms of Hawaii, we definitely uh, we're having a, a challenging time right now, but we could have more challenging experiences uh, if and when Mauna, well, Mauna Loa will erupt at some point. But. Mm-hmm. So what in studying these things, this is sound like a dumb question, uh, but what is the point of studying something like this? As in, you know, of course we have a thirst to really understand the things better, but practically speaking, it doesn't seem like you could change anything. We could get better at predicting or what, what are the other reasons that it's important to study volcanoes and, and these things? Right. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's important just for knowledge's mm-hmm. sake, but, but we can forecast eruptions. Unlike earthquakes, we can't give short-term forecasts of earthquakes. And by that, I mean, I like to say, you know, next Tuesday on the Hayward Fault magnitude 7, we can't say that. But we can forecast volcanic activity, not 100% of the time accurately, but we do see these signs that occur prior to many, many eruptions. And, and as I mentioned a little while ago, we saw those earthquakes migrating away from Pu'u'u'u towards the populated area. So by the time the eruption started, Plenty of warnings had gone out to say that an eruption was possible in this region. So this is a, a pretty good example of what we can do when we have the right monitoring equipment in place. Unfortunately, most of the world's volcanoes, in fact, most of the volcanoes in the United States, are not monitored very well. Mm-hmm. So uh, we don't even necessarily have good background recordings of what is going on day to day to know what would be unusual in Hawaii. We have good seismic instruments. We have precise GPS instruments, which is part of what I do. We have ways of monitoring from space. We can uh, monitor gas emissions from the volcano. All these different kinds of ways of knowing whether things are changing. But you've got, by far, the vast majority of volcanoes uh, don't have a single seismometer on them. Mm, I did not know that. And I guess there's probably more volcanoes than you think of, too. Uh, obviously, just saying the way that you said at the top that there's, they're going off all the time somewhere, it just makes you feel, feel like our Earth is just a crazy, crazy thing. I was just at the Natural History Museum in New York recently, and what else did I do? I did something else recently. Um, but I read, I, you know, I listened to science and stuff as a, just as a hobby. And I love thinking about the, and tell me if you think much in this realm or it doesn't really apply much, but the, uh, you know, when people talk about the formation of the earth itself and how it 
you know, collected and collapsed. And is most of the uh, the most of the Earth basalt? Is that what the most? Is that what we have a ton of? Like the early formation of the Earth to get to this point. Help me out uh, here. I'm trying yeah. to talk about the so, formation of the Earth, and I'm yeah. going to stumble into so, it. So first of all, we got to back up and talk about bigger structures. So we mm -hmm. have the crust of the Earth, which is relatively thin on continents. Mm -hmm. it, it's maybe 60 miles thick or something like that. In the oceans, it's considerably thinner. Then we have the Earth's mantle, mm -hmm. right? And then we go way down into the core. And the core we have an, uh, uh, is mainly iron-nickel alloy. Mm -hmm. The outer core is liquid and is convecting all the time. It's what generates our magnetic field. Then we have a solid inner core. So most of the... That's what I meant to say. <laughs> it's just so yeah. frustrating because I love science and it's that just like Feynman said if you if you know something you should be able to explain it to somebody Einstein said something like that too and I'm botching that too but it's like I feel like I understand the concept and then I go to explain it to somebody and it just I botch it every time which means you don't quite understand it good enough but anyway thanks it is a it is a good rule of thumb if you really understand it you should be able to explain that's it that's right that's right so the, the bulk of the Earth by volume is the mantle, and the mantle is, um, is even richer in iron and magnesium than basalt. But if you melt a mantle under natural processes, the melting of mantle material produces basalt. Okay. So we call basalt primitive magnets because that's what comes out of the mantle. Uh -huh. And then... So that's what's going on in Hawaii. The, the mantle's melting through a process that we could talk about. That gives rise to basalt lavas, and that's pretty much all you, you get. Although if basalt sits around and crystallizes long enough and it, it undergoes a process, it can produce lavas with different composition. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the... the, um, the uh, the term for mantle rocks uh, is, the well, one term is peridotite. The mineral peridote is a, a gem, peridote, mm -hmm. is, a, is an olivine green looking mineral. It's a birthstone too, right? It is a birthstone. And the, the common form of it is olivine. And it has that olive color. And... Rocks that are very rich in olivine are called peridotites because mm -hmm. of peridot. And so the mantle is basically composed of, the, of this peridotite under conditions where that are appropriate, melting can occur, and that's what occurs at uh, these ocean island volcanoes like Hawaii. It also occurs at mid-ocean ridges where tectonic plates are separating apart new crust is forming, what you get is you get melting of mantle materials that are producing basalt. So those are the primitive lavas that come out of the, the deeper part of the earth. Mm -hmm. I see. I know basalt was a big part of it. I was trying to get a grip on just thinking about the formation of the earth itself. Um, do you go far, that far back to think about the stuff from the nuclear furnaces coalescing and become, you know, how it, I was trying to get a grip on the history of the earth and how it was a just like it, it was just a hot. What was profound about it is that it was just this super hot, basalty or whatever rock. That's all we had when we first had Earth, when before it even cooled, right? Right. So you had um, little what people call planetesimals, small like asteroid-sized objects that were colliding into one another, mm -hmm. and 
depositing so much energy that material would melt. This was going on in the early part of the solar system formation when the rocky planets were forming. And things got hot enough that the iron, the really dense stuff, was liquid, sank to the bottom and formed the core. The lighter, relatively lighter part floated on the top, and that's what formed the mantle and ultimately the crust. But that was all going on four and a half billion years ago mm-hmm. at the very early stages of the Earth. But how did it get from, to how do we get crust then? I got the mantle, the iron I, I get down the yeah. middle, and then we have the, that mantle the way it was. How do we get to crust over the next, I don't know, couple billion years? Yeah. One, one billion maybe. Well, no, more than that. I mean, we've had crust for much longer than a billion years. Um, so you have melting of, once things sort of stabilized, um, then you have melting of mantle materials to produce basalts. Then you get erosion of that. that will produce sedimentary rocks that get buried in the ocean. They get compressed and, and turn into um, uh, metamorphic rocks. And what can happen is if you allow molten lavas, uh, magnets to sit underground for a while, they will uh, can change their chemistry through a process called fractionation. So these heavier minerals will form and sink to the bottom and they take out the iron and magnesium, sink to the bottom and they leave whatever's left over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like when you're distilling uh, I see. alcohol or something that that you get these lighter components that are richer in silicon and aluminum and, and all those kind of elements. And then you end up with something that has a different composition. Okay. Right? See, and that's a that missing piece to me. That, that actually helps. That's why I was kind of think I didn't get all the information on I was reading about or studying or thinking about it, but it's the, it distilled the, the diversity and the interesting and the life-giving stuff that we have on the crust was in smaller part in the other rock and it distilled that's not the exact it's not distillation it's the process you said fractionalization where that that separated itself and the lighter things came to the top and we're made out of and interact with all the lighter things up here on the crust Mm -hmm. okay and so then you've got billions of years to erupt those kind of magmas and then recycle them they can get um eroded into the ocean and get subducted down into the mantle and then re-erupted. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the, the earth is a very dynamic, you know, this is a, a old tired phrase, but it's a dynamic planet. It's always moving and things are recycling all the time for billions and billions of years. And that ends up with a very diverse surface that we have with continents and oceans and the continents have very complicated geology that some you know, rocks have been around for, you can go out and find they're over a billion years old. Um, so the plate tectonics are a real interesting part of that, that I think people have a pretty decent understanding when you think, oh, Pangea, then they move, then it goes here, and India crashes into China, and you get the Himalayas. You know, I think everybody yeah. kind of has that understanding. I don't know if there's a lot. I know there's obviously a lot more to it. Uh, I don't know if we oversimplify that, but I'm curious if, uh, like, even in the plate tectonics things, uh, what are those... My question is, is that a one-way ticket, or do those things change over time? Like, is it just going to keep... Are they moving permanently in their directions forever, or do things inside... Ch- like, uh, aren't, aren't there old mountains? I guess I'm, I'm lost there. Like, uh, the Appalachian Mountains, I think I heard, used to be extremely tall, maybe 30,000, 40,000 feet, now they've eroded down. So there must have been... They must have had a plate tectonic thing going at one point that they don't now. 
That's right. So things do change. As you mentioned, Pangaea was a supercontinent when all the continents were together and then they rifted apart. Um, the Appalachians uh, were associated with the opening and the closing of the Atlantic. Yeah, tell, that, I meant to stop on that, actually. That was the plate tectonic question I had. How did the Appalachians be super? First of all, people, when I tell them that, that I heard that, they don't ever believe me. They never, sure. Nobody ever believes me. I said, well, I think these mountains used to be tall like the Himalayas, but they eroded. And nobody ever believes me when I say that. But is that true? I don't know exactly how tall they were, but there was a significant mountain belt there, and those same rocks go all the way into Europe. You know, those related uh, deposits and rocks go up into England and Scotland, and at the time when if you take the Atlantic Ocean and just sort of imagine backing it up in time until that ocean closed, you juxtapose uh, Europe with Canada and uh, we and us with the eastern seaboard of the United States. So what's happening is that you get subduction initiating in places. So subduction is where cold oceanic lithosphere sinks into the mantle. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've got going on across the uh, Pacific Northwest now. You have the Juan de Fuca plate subducting beneath North America, and that's what's given rise to our uh, concern about earthquakes that you mentioned before, mm -hmm. the megathrust earthquakes. Megathrust uh, earthquakes. Let's do that in a second. Finish what you're saying. I don't know that term. I like it, though. Yeah. So um, that'll be going on. That may go on for 100 million years or for tens of millions of years. And then the, the way that the convection is occurring in the Earth's mantle may change. And uh, what doesn't happen is that the continents don't go down the drain because they're too light. Remember, I was talking about the different kinds of chemistries of the lavas and the, mm -hmm. and the basalts are relatively heavy and uh, rich in iron and, and magnesium. They're pretty dense and heavy, uh, whereas continents are relatively light. So they're like the cork floating on the top, and they just don't want to go down. So the continents, when you have two plates, you have an ocean basin that closes, and two continents ram into each other the way India did with Eurasia, which gives rise to the Himalayas, as you mentioned. Uh, the reason India didn't go down the drain is because it's a, it's a continental plate, and it's or that continental fragment, and it, it's too buoyant to subduct into the mantle. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's changing, but it's changing not on a human time scale. Yeah, of course, very, of course. Very long time scale. So we have very old mountain ranges that are deeply eroded, and we have ones that are active today, like the Cascades. And, and growing. And growing, mm -hmm. yeah, all the time. Um, so we say the subduction zone here in Seattle, I, I know people here like to talk about that. I don't know if people, people send me the article from time to time when they see it, but people here talk about it a good bit in Seattle and use the term mega thrust earthquake. Can, can we talk about that in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, this, this particular geography we have here in Seattle, um, with the subduction zone? Right. So what we have here going on is oceanic plate. It's relatively young. It's formed off the Oregon-Washington, British Columbia coast, and it's moving towards North America. It's oceanic, and so it's denser, and it's able to uh, subduct down, slide down beneath the continent of North America. And it does so on a really big uh, fault boundary. We call faults that are one... One is thrust up over the other on a relatively shallow plane. We call that a thrust fault. And this is a mega thrust because it's a really huge mega fault. Uh -huh. And it generates truly giant earthquakes. It generates a magnitude nine mm -hmm. size events. So that would be of the scale of the earthquake that we had in uh, Japan and the Tohoku region. 
and also in Sumatra, um, Indonesia back in 2004. So those are the biggest earthquakes, certainly in recent times. Uh, we know that the last time there was an earthquake of that size on the um, Cascadia Megathrust was in the year 1700. So it's been 318 years since then. There was an earthquake on that subduction zone itself yes. 300 years ago. That was maybe a magnitude, something like a nine. That's correct. And so we don't have much information of what that was exactly like, obviously. But that is pretty recent. And what is there a, a is that, what is the general frequency of that? Is that? Good question. Um, if you I know think it, the, if you don't know that topic. I head. think the best evidence we have is that those events may occur every 500 years or so. Mm-hmm. And you could say, okay, it's been 300 years, we're safe for 200 years. Well, it doesn't no, quite no work way, that yeah. way because it's a statistical distribution. These yeah. earthquakes don't occur like clockwork every 500 years. And that's the magnitude nine. So it's possible we could get a smaller earthquake, which would still be a magnitude eight, yeah. which could be damaging. And um, there's some evidence that farther south in the Cascadia subduction zone, they're a little bit more frequent. So that would be, you know, um, Oregon, Northern California region. But again, the, the, uh, the potential is there. And uh, we know that that earthquake occurred. It's an interesting story, but it, it did cause a tsunami that, that uh, was recorded in Japan. And it's what the Japanese call a ghost tsunami because there was no earthquake in Japan that could have generated that tsunami. Mm-hmm. And kind of by process of elimination, folks were able to determine that really the only place it could have come from is from Western North America. So we sent Japan a tsunami in 1700. That's true. I feel like in Seattle, we're lucky because we are in the Puget Sound. So if there's a big ocean tsunami, it hits the outer coast at least. So that's good in here. But that subduction zone stuff, people say, well, you furred your brow at that. I must be wrong. Go ahead. Oh, we're, no, go we're ahead. Still, are we still in danger of a tsunami too? <laughs> um, well, yeah, a tsunami will come through the Strait of Juan de Fuca mm-hmm. and and into the Puget Sound. How big it will be, I can't tell you off the top of my head. That's not something I, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Even modest earthquakes will generate a tsunami that can be measurable. It's not necessarily devastating. Mm-hmm. The other thing that has to be kept in mind with regard to people in Seattle in particular, or Portland, or other uh, places along the uh, Cascadia margin, is that it's not just the magnitude 9 megathrust. There are crustal faults there's something called the Seattle Fault, and it can generate earthquakes. It's not going to generate a magnitude 9, but a, a modest earthquake that's much closer to a city can also be very damaging. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a one-off hazard that we have to worry about. We have 500 years between them. We're all, all good to go for that time. It's just like I was mentioning with the volcanoes. You have a whole range of volcanic eruptions, and the little ones are pretty frequent. The big ones are, are rarer. So you have to kind of look at the whole spectrum and work out what the hazard is. Yeah. Well, people say stuff here like it's going to, you know, they describe that subduction zone as if the plate is moving up here really, really high. And when it gives way, it may just all give way at once and slide back on top of itself. And people say stuff like the ground elevation could drop 10 feet, you know, 10 and 15 feet in certain spots, just 
straight to, you know, which is a terrifying feeling. Is that possible or is that a, a myth, an exaggeration? No, that's um, – so, for example, in the, uh, the Tohoku earthquake in Japan, the coastline, the northeast coastline, the Pacific coastline of, of Honshu – subsided well over a meter, so six, uh, three mm. feet. It could have been uh, more in places. So what's happening is that as the oceanic plate is subducting into the mantle, it's not sliding on that fault because of friction. Mm-hmm. So it's what we call locked. It's stuck. Yeah. The plates have so much inertia. They're so big that they're just trucking along, doing their thing, but this boundary is, is stuck. And as the decades and, and centuries go by, stress is building up on that interface mm-hmm. until finally it gets high enough that it overcomes the friction and the fault suddenly slips. Mm-hmm. And when it does that, that's what generates seismic waves. During that time period, the part out at the trench, that's where the uh, plates going down uh, under the ocean, that's being pulled downward. Right? And it's, it's like a uh, flexible plate. So the inland parts or near the, some areas inland are actually bulging a little bit upward. But when the friction finally gives way, the part that's being pushed down suddenly springs back. It moves upward. Right? That's what generates a tsunami is a sudden upward movement of the seafloor. Uh-huh. That very rapid motion just pushes this big wall of water, and that goes rushing out, causing the tsunami. The inland area, well, depending on where the coastline is relative to the bottom of the, the slipping zone, will actually subside. And that can be along the coast or it can be a little bit inland, as I said, depending where the geometry is. So, yeah, you do get... Uh, crustal movements that happen, and you know we can. One of the reasons we're we're so confident that we know this is in our future is that we can go out and we can measure that going on year after year after year. That slow straining of the plate mm-hmm. as energy is building up. We can see some areas moving down, some areas moving up, and the whole western coast is being pushed inland mm-hmm. by this. This process, so the coastline there is moving in a, a centimeter or more per year, so a fraction of an inch. But you can imagine if it does that for five hundred years, it's like you're you're compressing a big spring. Yeah, Why and then you suddenly release it. That spring rebounds mm-hmm. very very rapidly. And yeah, that three hundred five hundred year timeline there is 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 that's the scary kind, not like the sun going out, not even like the Yellowstone volcano, but then this local situation i mean if we're already 300 years past the 500 year i mean all the money would be on it'll be plus or minus 200 years of 500 years right so it could be 700 or 300 just as easy yeah so that's right we're not we're not 300 years past the average we're 300 years past the last right but if it came early that'd be now if it came late if it came early yeah so i don't Right. We don't know enough to be able to say, um, other than in, 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 a, in a statistical sense, you know, what the likelihood of shaking is. And these maps are prepared so that engineers that are building tall buildings and building bridges and building dams and stuff like that, they can try to factor that into place. We make our best estimates. 
you take all the faults. You take the megathrust, you take the Seattle fault, you take all the faults that we know about, and you try to estimate how big of an earthquake they could have, and then you predict how strong the shaking would be at, say, the site where you're building a bridge or you're putting a new uh, uh, tall mm -hmm. building in, in downtown Seattle, and all that gets factored in, but it's only based on the best information that we have at that time. So we're always going out trying to get more information so we can do a better job of that. It's crazy on how conservative be like they, you know, like the levees in New Orleans. They engineered them. They just didn't think, you know, for a hundred years. I don't know, like you say, a oh, hundred year storm or something. But I don't know. It's just maybe we should be more. You know, that that's hard stuff. Do people consult you for stuff like that? Not for storms, but no, not for storms. <laughs> okay. But I just mean engineering specs for the future and timelines of of what to how resistant to build of a magnitude earthquake or whatever. Yeah, so I, you know, I uh, my research tends to be more on the basic science side, but that what we do is contributing towards mm -hmm. the community's ability to make these assessments. So these are all big team efforts. It's not right. one person sits down and makes a decision. Of course. It's a big team that, that's involved in these. And the funding for for the for most of this type of thing is is government. That's correct. I mean, who that's else is it. interested in funding volcano research? You know, well, or earthquake research. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's uh, your tax dollars are going to um, say U.S. Geological Survey to do these studies, or sometimes we get. So the U.S. Geological Survey will fund say, my research to contribute towards understanding volcanic hazards or earthquake hazards, more on the basic science side, but also we always have to say how this is going to contribute to reducing hazard for Americans. National Science Foundation will tend to, to support more basic science because that's what their mission is. Uh, but it always helps that we, it's always important in my mind that I'm working on problems that I think ultimately contribute to making people safer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think the farther we go on, um, I mean, I, I'm thinking about these things a little bit. Just I, I, like I said, I just listen to whatever books, science books, stuff for entertainment. But if I think about artificial intelligence or the climate change or volcanoes or natural disaster, asteroids. These are things that you know. I'm a relatively libertarian-minded guy, and I'd, I'd think the government should spend less, but who, I mean, these are societal, civilizational problems we got to be working on. Like, you, ha we have to be doing it. I mean, we've got to fund these things, and you think they're adequately funded, or you think we should be putting a lot more into this that kind of thing? And I won't make you speak on the others, but just yours. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, yeah, of course, I'm probably a little bit biased on this, but, you know, relative to, say, Japan, which is another advanced country that has significant risk from earthquakes and volcanoes. We're not investing nearly as much. Mm -hmm. They have much better infrastructure than we do. Um, and uh, yeah, it comes down to the question of if we agree as a society that, that um, we're concerned about these hazards, then it's not something you can go off and, and you know, found a startup right. and make money doing it because... Uh, it's not something where the payoff is going to come at any time soon. It, it's, it's a long-term payout. So I think it's something that the government pretty much has to support if we're going to do it. And, um, but, you know, we want to do the best job that we can given the resources that, that people give us because it's, uh, you know, we don't take it for granted. 
True. So, but Japan being ahead of us, you think we could step it up and fund it more? I imagine you would say at least. Oh, absolutely. I but it's not. It, it's not dev- Like it's not horrible. Un- horribly underfunded. <laughs> or what? Well, it depends. Um, I think we could do more, and you probably have heard about the early warning projects for earthquake early warnings. We can't predict earthquakes, but we can tell once one started. Mm-hmm. So, for example, let's talk about tsunami for a minute. Okay. And. Um, a, years ago, there was no tsunami warning system. You, know, you go back to pre-1960-something, there was no tsunami warning system. There was a magnitude 9 earthquake in Chile. Okay? It's the biggest earthquake ever recorded. It was magnitude 9.5. 1960 Chilean earthquake. Biggest one ever instrumentally recorded. It caused a tsunami, which took 15 hours to cross the Pacific Ocean before it hit Hawaii. And it killed people in Hawaii 15 hours later. Then it kept rolling across the ocean and it eventually hit Japan. It took a full day, 24 hours, to cross the Pacific and it killed people in Japan. So we used to have a situation where earthquakes generated in the Aleutian Islands and Alaska would hit Hawaii, take five hours, six hours to get there, and they'd kill people because there was no warning. Crazy. So people realized that's kind of ridiculous. So we should set up a system where every time there's a really big earthquake, magnitude 8 plus type earthquake, you know, you, and it's underwater, you know there's a potential for a tsunami. So we set up something called the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, PTWC. It's, it's headquartered in Honolulu or just outside Honolulu. And that's been working like a charm because you've got six hours for these distant tsunamis or 15 hours or whatnot before they, they hit your coastline. But now let's go back to the scenario for the magnitude 9 earthquake off the coast of Oregon, Washington. For people in Japan, they're going to get a really long warning. But the people in Oregon, Washington are going to get 20 minutes, 30 minutes at most. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so that means that's a much more challenging problem because you need to, if you're operating a warning system, you need to detect or so you need to figure out how big it is. You've got to verify that this is all real. So we have buoys out in the ocean that measure the, the height of the waves. And they're not nearly as big in the open ocean as they are once they crash on land right. because as they come on land, they grow. Right. You know, they get bigger and bigger. So there's a very compressed amount of time to do that so that's a challenging situation. We also want to warn people that the shaking's coming. That's an even more challenging problem because you've got seconds to maybe tens of seconds, depending on how far away you are. But that's something they do routinely in Japan. And we're trying to get Give you a 45-second warning of an earthquake, for instance. Well, that it, can it save depends your life. on how far you are. Yeah. But it might be time for you... Um, you know, to get under a table, which right. is a sturdy table, so if something collapses, it doesn't crush you. Yeah, or, or to go, down, could, go downstairs, whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, you have, you have all kinds of scenarios. It might be time to get the fire engines out of the station right. so that they don't get stuck in there when the doors jam shut. Mm-hmm. Or if you've got a surgeon that's about ready to stick a scalpel into you that, you know, he knows that Pause the, the whole place is going to start shaking. Yeah. So maybe it's a good time to stop and take a break. Uh, so there are all kinds of things that can be done. The amount of warning depends on how far away. So this is a very challenging problem. Japan's doing this. 
they have automated systems to shut down the bullet trains and all this kind of stuff. We're trying to get the funding to do that, but we're not there yet. I see. It's going to take the federal government. It's going to take the states to make commitments to support these I kind of it. programs. And it, I guess it's ultimately a question of whether people think this is important enough mm-hmm. that they want to encourage their representatives to uh, support such a program. I, I don't get the feeling that that's what people are concerned about politically these days, is what the representatives <laughs> no, are doing not. about earthquake warning. But yeah. uh, they maybe should be because that actually matters more than some of the stuff that people do care about. But the, uh, that so that's real practical. It's like if with what is already understood and known with a little bit more funding, you could actually implement like more automated stops for th- like, just like you said there. So there's a lot of things that could be done currently with what we already have and know if it was deployed or, you know, funded better or decided yeah, upon by the residents, exactly. local or, or federal. Well, we're going back to volcanoes. You know, you could, um, we have all these, these, uh, volcanoes out in the Aleutians, some of which don't have, I don't think a single seismometer on them. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, way out in the Lucians, who lives out there? But those, um, when you have ash emission like that, that can get up into the level where jet planes fly. And if a a plane goes into an ash cloud, uh, it can crash. You know, it can clog the engines and cause the engines to shut down. And we haven't had a crash. Mm -hmm. We've had a couple close misses over time. That's why they had to shut it all down when, uh, I'm going to try this, a Jaka Fiocal went off or something, right? Right, in Iceland. Yeah. Had to shut down the airspace because... um, there was a concern of um, ash getting into the engines. So there's a lot of things that we could do if the funding was a little uh, more robust that I think that would contribute to safety. But, um, you know, we do the best we can with what we got. Well, is there anything else about Hawaii and that's going on now that I don't know the question to ask that's interesting? Yeah, so I'll put out one thing, and that might be interesting to your listeners, and, and that is they may have heard about the possibility of a somewhat more explosive eruption at the summit of Kilauea. And what's been happening, there was a, a lava lake present at the crater at the top of, of uh, the volcano there. It's been there since 2008. And starting with this recent activity, that lava level drained, started draining down. And it was moving down pretty fast until it disappeared from sight completely. And that may sound like a good thing, uh, because the lava is going away, what's happening is it's moving down and then it's draining out way out at the the end where the people are living. But there is a possibility if it drops low enough that it would the hot rock would encounter groundwater, and if it encounters groundwater, it could flash to steam and get what we call a phreatomagnetic eruption. Phreato, a phreatic eruption is just a steam blast. Uh-huh. magnetic means it's kind of a mixture of steam and magma. And if that happens, you can get pretty big blocks of rock that are just blown out of the Spread volcano. Out. The last time that happened was 1924 and, or 25, I don't remember exactly, but there were pretty big chunks of rock that were blasted out of the volcano. And so right now they've closed the national park there because they're concerned about people being there should that occur. Wow. And as of today, there's a lot of ash coming out of the volcano, but uh, they've had a whole bunch of earthquakes, but nothing big has come out. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but there is a possibility of a, a, a more explosive eruption. Nowhere near super eruption, but a, a more explosive phase, and that's why they're concerned enough to close down the park, keep people out of that, that immediate area. Interesting. Very good. Well, thank you for helping me 
uh, understand some things about that and poke around in those various areas. I know people are paying attention now, so I thought it'd be a good time. And I do feel very lucky to get your time when things are exciting, probably for you. So thank you for your time today. And hopefully people will pay attention to this even a little bit more now that it's in the news and stuff like that. But I find it fascinating and enjoyed it very much. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. Thank, thank you very you. much. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor. And every week, I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So, come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.